Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. Black and Deadly Sound, 3CR, Community Radio, 855 on the 3CR would like to acknowledge the Kulin Nations, true owners, caretakers and custodians of the land from which we broadcast. 3CR pays respects to elders past and present, and we acknowledge that sovereignty was never ceded. This is 3CR Breakfast. Alternative news, analysis and current affairs. Monday to Friday, 7am to 8.30am. Good morning. <laughs> Good morning. You're listening morning. to Tuesday Breakfast. I love it. We all looked around. You know, the thing is, okay, you're listening to Tuesday Breakfast on 3CR Community Radio, 855 M, the time is 7 a.m. We don't know the weather. But it's George, nice. It's nice. Look at me. I just throw it to George. I'm like, George. Well, she's got the laptop out. I love it. It is currently 14 degrees, and it's going to be a top of 24. Yay. And guess who we have back? Hey. Hey. Oh. <laughs> it's nice to be back. Woo. Um, We've missed you. I've missed you guys. And I would just like to say publicly... How much I love you all. Oh. <laughs> um, and yeah, it's, uh, it's nice to be back. So, what have I missed? I believe I missed Oof. the awards night on Friday. Mm. Anya, I'm going to throw that to you. You were going to bring that up, weren't you? I was. So, Ayan and I hosted the awards night. Woo! Mm. Um, I'm not sure who trusted us with that responsibility. <laughs> <but it> was <laughs> we're blaming Will from Wednesday breakfast. So. We had a great time. Who cares if anyone else did? Um, and Tuesday Breakfast won, what did we win? Uh, we won the best new program, which is funny because Tuesday Breakfast has been around forever. <laughs> yeah. But I think they cheated. best new crew, maybe? Yeah, yeah. yeah, it's a new team in Breakfast. Oh, so. oh that's That's okay. flexible. It's definitely and <laughs> I believe Ayan walked away with <laughs> yeah. a very fitting oh, award. Oh, God, Troublemaker. <laughs> yeah. I, was like, oh, I was like, oh, that's nice. No, but the title was Troublemaker, but the work was... I think the description was for the for using radio as an activist tool. Yeah. So yeah, once it's explained, but troublemaker sounds like yeah. <laughs> I was like trouble. Oh, I didn't get but it. In a good but way. Yeah, yeah, but in a good yeah. way. In a good way. And who else other than you? Yeah. Who oh, would ever win that please. award? Yay. Thank you so much. Yay. It was I such wish a beautiful I knew how to play the applause um, thing on the panel, but yeah. Look, Anya's panelling today. <laughs> we will get there. She's doing an amazing job. <laughs> to be honest, hun, I can't even see it on there. So. Yeah, it's not there. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so we've got a good show today. We mm. do. But before we get to that, Meredith, what happened? Meredith was Louise McDonald awesome. tune out now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, my brother Roy and I definitely got up to no good. No, we were very well behaved. Um, it was... Um, it was so much fun, and there was some like just incredible artists. Sampa played the be- oh the best moment. Sampa covered Lauren Hill. No. Um, what's the one that's like 
girl, they know you better. I do what? Yeah. Yeah, that one. Um, and, but then she changed the verses. So she had her own verses and then she sang the chorus. Oh, my God. George's oh. head was exploding. We were, like, dying. Like, because yeah. I was in, in a crowd of people that were, like, obsessed with Lauryn Hill. And just, like, it was... Yeah. Oh. And there was... Yeah, there was just some really, like, some amazing artists that I hadn't heard before that I'm really hoping to play on Tuesday breakfast in the next couple of weeks. So that was cool as well. Please do. Yeah. yeah, it's a great it's a great experience. I always love going to festivals. It's a lot of fun. <laughs> mm. You cutie. Is it time for a song? Yeah. So this, actually, this didn't come from Meredith, but uh, Carly Oldest, who is the lead singer of The Bamboos, has just had this album come out, and on it there's a cover of a Jeff Buckley song, which is called Everybody Here Wants You. It's just so beautiful. You're listening to Tuesday Breakfast on 3CR, and that was a track by Carly Oldest, lead singer of the Bamboos. It's called Everybody Here Wants You, and it's from her 2008 album, Just Say. Archer Magazine, Australia's most inclusive publication about sex and gender, will launch their 11th issue at Arts Project Australia in Northcote this coming Friday, the 14th of December. Join us from 7.30pm for readings, performance, raffles, disco tunes and one of the most feisty and friendly dance floors in town. Tickets start at $5 and no one's turned away for lack of funds. For more information and to book tickets, head to facebook.com forward slash Archer Magazine. A 3CR supporter. The City of Stonington presents Carols at Como Park. Join host Shane Jacobson for an evening featuring performances by Casey Donovan and many more. Bring along a picnic and celebrate under the stars with a riverside pyrotechnic display to conclude the night. Carols at Como Park, Sunday, December 16, from 7.30pm. See the City of Stonington website for more details. A 3CR supporter. Are you 18 years and over? Have you been stopped by a Victorian police officer or protective service officer in the last 10 years? Would you like to contribute to research that aims to inform law reform and litigation strategies to prevent over-policing? Go to policestopsurvey.online for more information and to take part. That's policestopsurvey.online, a 3CR supporter. Welcome back to Tuesday Breakfast on 3CR Community Radio. Um, getting a bit fiery in here. <laughs> <laughs> we started off just talking about what we're reading in the news and it ended up with threats of physical violence. So, <laughs> um, so we just wanted to highlight some cool things that are happening in the news because, I don't know, I, I potentially am alone in this, but um, when something good happens in the news, I like to hold on to it with both hands and probably both feet because it's so few and far between. Mm. Um so we wanted to highlight that, firstly, two prominent Australian lawyers, George Newhouse, um, who's the principal solicitor of the National Justice Project, and Julian Burnside, who is a Queen's counsel, I believe, in Victoria, um, are launching a class action lawsuit against the Department of 
Home Affairs, I'm pretty sure, on behalf of the detainees on Manus and Nauru. Um, and it's really interesting, and I won't go into it because I'll sound like a loser, but um, they're, no, they're running it. a Crimes Against Humanity argument, mm. which is really unusual. Um, and so a number of um, MPs and lawyers in the past have referred various members of our government, um, I think back from probably Gillard and Abbott, mm. certainly I think Kevin Rudd, um, mm. and since then they've referred them to the International Criminal Court for Crimes Against Humanity. Mm. Um, but, you know, referrals take ages and there is a whole lot of um, accusations of racial bias in terms of the ICC. So mm. ultimately it never got there, but it's interesting that it's happening in an Australian court now. And I don't know, I'm feeling, if, I don't know if anybody else is feeling it, but I, this might actually be an opportunity for something to really um, to really happen. I don't. It's it's very serious and it's a very um, high threshold to prove. But mm. I think with all of the evidence and all of the things that we know about what happens mm. on those islands, yeah, mm. it's probably as good a chance as we'll get. I think it's very brave as well of the lawyers to. Mm. Yeah. And what makes it a possibility at the moment? Do you know? So. Um, the accusation, or the sorry, the allegations in the claims are around torture and crimes against humanity, and so both of those have really clear definitions um, in international law. And so, um, I guess they will have to prove intent. Mm. Um, intent to cause harm to people. Yeah, they could. They, Ooh, surely they would be a difficult one. Mm. Well. I mean, yes but and no. The fact that it's being used as a deterrent. Yeah, people are locked up as a deterrent. That's I wonder if that's grounds. To make and that's an what argument. I'm thinking. If it's if it's being faced with all of the evidence and saying mm. no, we're still we're still thinking this is the right thing to do because of X Y Z. I mean, I don't know. Um, but so crimes against humanity are just like particularly horrific. Um, and so. I think there's also a negligence argument interwoven into that. That's what is very novel about this. Okay. So just um, just pursuing something as you know a crime against humanity apparently has failed in the past. So mm. this is yeah. a novel approach. Which is interesting mm. because a negligence argument has previously resulted in out of court settlement. Mm. In that, really, I don't even want to talk about it. The Morris Blackburn. Yeah. So. Super interesting. Who knows? I yeah. really, I don't know. I was listening to George Newhouse speak yesterday on radio, and I was just thinking, like, I don't, it, if it gets to the point where you just have barristers, like, well, we've just got to bloody try this, don't we? Mm. Yeah. Mm. When it comes to intent, because I've been reading um, the book by Robin D'Angelo about mm. white privilege. And in the first chapter, she talks about how a lot of people think that racism is about racial violence, mm. right? So when you start to think about intent, unless the person is committing, like, heinous harm, people won't see it as, mm. like, intent. People would sort of be like, oh, I was just doing my job. But when you think about the, like, what, I hate to use the American context, but every time police officers in the U.S. talk about um, fearing for their life the way they portray the black person and the way the black person is is two different stories mm. so when you construct somebody mm. as like a monster your actions are justified because you're fighting a monster yeah so so intent becomes kind of a grey area in that situation because yeah. your intent is perhaps I see what you're saying and I'm yeah, having trouble and I'm going to finish it. my coffee yeah. yeah yeah but your intent is perhaps not um, so it's what it would be in a situation where you hadn't been socialized or trained to think. Yeah, exactly. Interesting. Exactly. So it's going to be, I don't know, it's, 
it's going to be a hard negligence I can sort of see. Mm. I think negligence, I mean, obviously there was no decision handed down in the Murray B's trial, Mm. but I feel like from memory negligence had pretty much been Mm. like it was there was enough there to prove it. Mm. I'm not sure what negligence would look like in an, like an international context. What, like, yeah. Well, yeah. But, yeah. I mean, we know the elements in, in Australian law, but we don't know what that means in the ICC. So, mm. And if you're listening, sorry, uh, I should include this as well. If you're listening now, you can text us on 0488-809-855. That's 0488 809-855 and any conversation that we're having would love to hear from you and just maybe there's a different way like different thought that you have or maybe you've heard something that we've said that sounds interesting that you want to build on so give yeah, us a call soon Hi, I'm Maurice and I'm Mario and we're Chronically, Chronically Chilled, Chilled a program that aims to provide a platform to those living with chronic and invisible illness, as well as exploring topics that impact on our daily lives. Listen to Chronically Chilled, the first Wednesday of every month at 6pm. Say it loud, say it clear, refugees are welcome here. Say it loud, say it clear, refugees are welcome here. Remember name of the special day for us, fellas. That's a reminder who we are. Every year for NAIDOC Week, 3CR Community Radio gives voice to our Indigenous brothers and sisters through Beyond the Bars, Australia's only live prison broadcast. I am a black, black man. NAIDOC means a lot to me. It's about identity and also about past and present. NAIDOC means a lot to me for my family and my people. And the people forgetting about our rights. You can access audio from current and past Beyond the Bars broadcasts via the 3CR website. Go to 3cr.org.au forward slash beyond the bars and either listen to or download audio from Australia's only live prison broadcasts. Happy night off. You're listening to Tuesday Breakfast on 3CR. On the line, we have Karen Field, who is the CEO of Drummond Street Services and Queer Space. And Karen is here to talk about some issues around the holiday season for the LGBTIQA plus community and what Drummond Street Services and Queer Space are doing to support the members of that community. So thank you so much for joining us this morning, Karen. Thank you. So many of our listeners will be quite familiar with Drummond Street and Queer Space, but would you mind giving us a, a brief intro to these services for anyone who hasn't heard before? Yeah. Um, Drummond Street has been around for 130 years, um, and it's always had um, a commitment to really reaching out to those communities that uh, don't often engage with services or don't often feel comfortable engaging with services. So since the 1970s, in fact, we've been providing counselling services. Uh, And I guess then in the last uh, 15 years, uh, we established Queer Space um, 
and really expanded the services um, to provide the first ever LGBTIQ mental health service. Um, so today, um, queer space is quite uh, large. It ha- is completely staffed by um, queer uh, clinicians, uh, community development workers, youth workers, etc., and we have a whole arm of, army of um, trainers and researchers. Um, we see uh, and provide services to all age groups. So I think our youngest client is about four years of age and our oldest is 85 um, and wow. <laughs> provide a full breadth of uh, public health programs. So mm. that includes relationships and parenting and family violence programs, um, supporting both victims and people who use violence, uh, mental health programs, AOD, housing homeless, specialist queer youth services. Um, yeah, so it's quite a large program now right across the northwest region and down as far as Geelong. Mm, it's such a such an incredibly important holistic kind of service and the fact that it's it's people are being supported by people that might have shared a similar identity or shared lived experiences is just so important as well. <clears throat> so, yeah, that's exactly right. <laughs> yeah. And so why might Christmas be a difficult time for some members of the LGBTIQA plus community? Look, yeah, I mean, we already know. I think it's a really complex question at the moment. I think um, we already know from our own research um, that we see high rates of social disconnection and isolation across the LGBTI community, but in particular for our trans and gender diverse community, queer people of colour, um, for some of our young people, uh, they can often find that they're disconnected from family. Um, but also if you come from a different uh, faith, um, such as a large cohort of our QDPOC, um community, they can find this time of the year um, very othering. You're, you know, you're completely bombarded all the time with, you know, this great kind of Christmas as a time for family and community. Mm. Um, but it can feel extremely isolating. Mm. Yeah, so if if you don't have the same kind of experience with it and you're bombarded with all of these images in the media, then, it, yeah, that's very understandable that it would be quite difficult. And if you layer that on top of just this continual social and political commentary uh, that you don't exist or you don't have a right to exist or, um, you know, your your very existence is being questioned, um, this can be a pretty miserable time. Mm, yeah. Yeah, and it seems like, you know, obviously for a lot of uh, queer people, family can, is, is a really difficult, can be a difficult thing and and to you know some people have had breakdowns with families for coming out and I guess that those would be issues that might come up during the holiday season as well absolutely and um, I I think um, it's you know we've we've been a provider of um, specialist kind of counseling for sex and gender diverse children and young people but also for their families Um, and this can be a difficult time for the whole family in that often they know and can uh, feel reticent to take their child or young person to larger family Christmases for fear that their young person is going to be not supported in that environment. Mm. So it can have quite a, quite a sort of rippling effect. Yeah. 
Yeah, and I know for myself and other people, uh, other queer people, um, there is that kind of doubt with the extended family when you kind of think that you, you sort of feel, you might feel supported by the people that are close to you, but you're not quite sure what your, you know, great-grandparent might think or your cousin might think, and it's like kind of going into those bigger family dynamics, which might, there might be those unknowns or that fear there. Yeah, and people often talk about, um, you know, the need to really think about if you're going to put yourself in that position. Um, and for, you know, for a lot of our young ones, um, sometimes it's just too much. Mm, yeah. And so how is Drummond Street and Queer Space aiming to support people who might be impacted by these issues during the holiday period? Um, so obviously um, we have a full range of programs because we understand the issues of social isolation for many in our community. This is not something we just do at this time of the year. Um, but it really, I think, struck uh, us that this year, you know, in particular, has been a really kind of tough time uh, as we've kind of over the last two or three years seen this, you know, increased kind of social commentary. Um, so in, in addition to the kind of programs that we run ourselves, uh, we also provide a home um, and back-of-house support to many of the ground-up voluntary organisations such as Transgender Victoria, Parents of Gender Diverse Kids, Y Gender, The Shared, Rainbow Families, Bisexual Alliance, etc. So they run a lot of their events and all of those um, events and activities will continue to run throughout the year. Uh, but knowing full well we need to be really thinking about what we're running during this time. So um, in addition to um, the range of programs that we run, including this kind of uh, sex and gender diverse children and young people and families, we have The Village, which is um, a peer support group for parents of gender diverse kids um, so that they, are, they too are being supported. And that's going to expand into a, a mentoring program in the first part of next year. Um, and also um, an, our existing kind of yearly program of queer youth activities and queer youth peer leaders, we are going to be expanding that as a, a mentoring program as well. And I think that's really important because it allows queer adults to bring their skills and time to support other queer young people. Mm. Um and so those are things that will be starting off early next year. We have our Invisible project uh, with lots of activities and events for Pop young people. Um, and so that's really important that they get to sort of meet and, and connect up with each other. Uh, but on Christmas Day, which is we're um, really excited that a number of us, including the Commissioner, are coming together at, at 9.30 at Flagstaff Gardens um, to actually put on a, a breakfast uh, where there'll be vegan, vegetarian, halal options for anyone who wants to come together uh, and connect up with, you know, their village, their, their queer community um, and uh, start Christmas Day um, with a kind of lovely breakfast with us all. It sounds like so much fun, just getting the opportunity to meet some other lovely queers and just, yeah, spend a morning together in Flagstaff Gardens, just, yeah, it sounds awesome, it's such a great event that you're hosting. Thank you, yeah, no, I think it'll be a great thing and I'm really looking forward to it, we've got some entertainment and um, music, um, we're, we're happy to hear from anyone who 
wants to volunteer on the day, uh, I'll be on a number of barbecues. <laughs> <laughs> um, but, you know, I think it's a, a really lovely thing that we can come together and, and go, you know what, we, we do have a community that loves us and, and uh, really wants to nurture us on that particular day. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And, the, and I guess the idea that, you know, if Christmas is an important day for someone it doesn't have to be spent with family. It can be spent with who, your fr- your friendship family, you know, people and your community, people that are important to you, and you can make that, you can build that environment. Yeah, and it's your family of choice. And, yeah. and you know, we, we really want people to bring their friends and bring, you know, those family members that they do have a connection to that, you know, you can feel uh, really connected into something much bigger than, than what you what it feels like you're missing. Um, and I think, you know, that's a, a, a really simple and great thing that um, we can all do together. Mm. So, Karen, can you run us through the details um, again, just for anyone listening who would like to attend? Yeah, so it'll be at Flagstaff Gardens, um, very close to the corner of King and Dudley Street. Um, so if you just come in that entranceway, you'll find us all there. It'll kick off at 9.30. Um, and, uh, you know, you just come along, uh, we'll have everything on and provided for the day. Um, I'm really hoping I can find uh, one of those coffee carts that, that <laughs> might be willing to, to be there for people to get oh, their yeah. injection of coffee in the morning. Um, <laughs> but it's also on the Drummond Street services yes. and the Queer Space Facebook page. Yep. Um, and there's an Eventbrite set up there so we can get some sense of numbers etc but everyone is welcome um we'd love anyone who wants to volunteer or, or even bring their guitar or you know, <laughs> there'll be a mic there and people can get up and sing or do whatever they want to do yeah well it sounds so beautiful thank you so much karen for your time this morning we've shared the event on our instagram and facebook page and i also just want to say thank you for the incredible work that you do we um we're big fans of drum street and chris face here at tuesday breakfast so thanks for your time this morning Thank you so much for having me on. Cheers. Bye. Looking for a gift for the lefty in your life this Christmas? 3CR has a range of publications, clothing, CDs, wine and other products available online or from the station. New items include the 2019 How to Make Trouble and Influence People Diary, which features a radical event in Australian history for each day of the year, as well as stories and images covering Indigenous Australian resistance, strikes, street art, convict escapes, creative direct action, blockades, protests and occupations. Also available is Fighting for Spaces, Fighting for Our Lives, a collection of essays, photographs and first-hand accounts about the squatting movements from around the world today. And on the fly, an anthology which features dozens of stories, poems and songs originally produced by American hobos from the 1870s to the 1940s. Sale of these publications all help keep 3CR on air. For more information or to make a purchase, visit 3cr.org.au forward slash shop. You're listening to Tuesday Brekkie on 3CR. Going to play a track by one of Lauren's favourite artists, I think, Raven Linnae. Um, this track is called Moon Shoes.
The City of Stonington presents Carols at Como Park. Join host Shane Jacobson for an evening featuring performances by Casey Donovan and many more. Bring along a picnic and celebrate under the stars with a riverside pyrotechnic display to conclude the night. Carols at Como Park, Sunday, December 16, from 7.30pm. See the City of Stonington website for more details. A 3CR supporter. You're listening to 3CR Radio. What happened at the Nuwala? Yeah, I am Georgie and myself, Lauren. And now we are going to hear a pre-record, well, it was recorded, um, on 3CR's Disability Day broadcast with Nicole Smith, Jax Jackie Brown and Elvira Tarant speaking about parenting with a disability, how to navigate stereotypes and medical models of disability and what support and resources are available. So we're just going to hear part one now. Hello and welcome to this special broadcast event for International Day of People with a Disability. I'm Nicole Smith. I'm a person with a disability wanting to be a mother one day. Today we will be talking to two women I am proud to call personal friends. You're listening to 3CR and we have in the studio with me Jack Jackie Brown and joining us on the phone Alvira Tarrant. Hi ladies, thanks for joining me to talk about parenting as a person with a disability. Now if I could start with you Jax, just a bit of your backstory. Uh, you're recently a new parent? Yeah I am. I've got a uh, seven-and-a-half-month-old um, daughter with my partner, Anne, and um, I guess a little bit of our backstory is that uh, as a queer couple, we went through IVF to conceive her, um, and that, for anyone who's been through that, was a really exhausting emotional uh, and exhausting financial process as well, um, and the way that industry kind of relates and frames disability as a negative medical problem was actually uh, really challenging for me as someone who um, is really proud of my body and proud to have a disability and to belong to the disability community to enter an industry that uh, saw disability as an inherently negative thing um, was was challenging. So especially given that, you know, the choice to try and become a parent is such an emotional one. Um, So, yeah, I guess they're the kind of things that inform my thinking about um, trying to conceive our daughter, but then also... Um, thinking politically about how we can kind of make um, fertility services more affordable and accessible and inclusive for people with disabilities. Definitely. Um, Alvira, if we could just hear from you now what your story is. Yeah, definitely. So I've got uh, two little little ones and I've got a little girl. She's two, two and a bit, and a little boy is nearly one. So I've got my fair hands full. But um, initially, I did find it quite confronting and still do in some respects. Um, there's a lot of, I guess, perceptions that are really challenging at times, um, not to mention the stares and things that you get when they yell out mummy to you and, and cling to you and things. But um, also medically, like in the medical profession, I think a lot of doctors, a lot of nurses, a lot of midwives, I found... Um, quite difficult to deal with at times. Um, these are all things I raised at the time, but I think we've got a, a definitely a long way to go with how they how they perceive us, uh, people with a disability, um, becoming parents and and becoming good parents of that, um, and just acknowledging that, like anyone, we we can make mistakes and 
and we have, you know, both good and bad things um, about us as individuals, but I guess the disability is only one part of that. It doesn't really have to affect the child's life negatively. Mm -hmm. I guess with me, um, I am desperate to be a parent at some stage in the future, Um, And I guess with me, one of the things that's sort of um, getting me down or that I'm worried about is that I need um, support workers myself. So how then am I going to be a parent and care for another little human? So, um, Elvira, I know that you have support workers. How did you, uh, I suppose... um, get over that or justify that in in your own mind? Yeah, I think it's a work in progress. Like, initially, um, I was quite overwhelmed by it. Initially, I thought, you know, who in their right mind would be willing to help a person with a disability and their child and manage all that and juggle it and yet stand back when they need to and, you know, so for me, it was really important and we've talked about this often and I've tried to guide you, and I mean, for myself, I'm still trying to work it out. Um, I haven't, you know, found this magic formula to um, managing all of that, but I think it's really important to find support workers in any regard that really understand you as a person, and I guess understanding what you want to do with your life, irrespective of whether you want to be a parent or not, but then understanding that next step, okay, I want to be a mother, how are you going to help me be a mother and and not just help, you don't want them to necessarily mother your child. I, I never wanted that and I never do ever want that um, because I'm more than capable of doing that. I just need them to understand um, and have that unspoken understanding sometimes. Sometimes the conversation is necessary um, but sometimes the person has to really be intuitive and understand where the boundaries are yeah. because there definitely are boundaries that can be overstepped. I think I think that this is Jack. I think there's gendered expectations around it too. Like I think what's expected of men with disabilities who potentially want to be fathers or who are fathers is a really different level of engagement and kind of engagement to what's expected for women who have disabilities because I think we're expected to be able to do everything and be on top of everything and then if you can't do that like if you need support to do that um, then there is a lot of judgment that comes on you both externally and internally like I I'm currently on my first NDIS package and I felt really hard in that package to get parenting supports in that package Um, and um, so I have had some parenting supports as well and One of the things that I've found really challenging about that is that um, while the people have been really lovely, uh, they have stepped in and done stuff for my kid and and with my kid that I couldn't do or that I can't do in the same kind of way. Um, And so it's about a negotiation about, okay, so I need you to assist me to get my daughter um, off the floor on her play mat, onto my lap and strapped into my... um, my little belt thing that I wear around my my lap to carry her around the house. 
Um, but I don't need you to pick her up and play with her and, you know, have a game with her. I just need you yeah. to assist me in yeah. doing these tasks so that then I can take her and read her a book or do whatever we're doing together. Um, and yeah. I think often when people are, you know, engaging with your child and you're paying them to do that, they, they take on a more kind of babysitting type role in their mind yeah. and that's not I, I, what you want. Yeah. yeah. Mm. And that's been something that I've definitely found. So, Jack, you're at like seven months now and that's when I probably found it the hardest because um, my child, now with the second one, I found it much easier because I've found, I guess, what I need to talk to my carer about mm-hmm. and I've also found a carer that's really understanding. But that was a big issue for me and with my first child, I felt like, I felt this overwhelming anxiety that, you know, my child's not going to know who the mother is. My my child's not going to be able to identify that, okay, yes, I call this lady mummy, but why isn't she doing X, Y, and Z for me? And I felt that, you know, one day she was just not going to have that connection. And a lot of the time it was about making the carer understand that you are here to support me to be the mother and you are not the mother or you are not the person that's meant to, I guess, remove that that bond or come in between that bond. And mm-hmm. I think um, it takes a lot of practice and it takes a lot of understanding from the support worker even for little things like, you know, choosing what they're going to wear or um, even having a conversation and you trying to teach them to say mum and then them stepping in, even though it's a natural thing to try and engage with the child if they're cute and all that kind of stuff, you need them to understand that, wait a second, if the child's engaging with you, they need to take that little step back. Mm. Um, and and that's, it's, a tricky, it's a tricky one, but I think there's ways around it. Um, and you kind of got a bit more comfortable with it over time and, and you learn to, yeah, deal with it a bit better. For anyone tuning in, you're listening to 3CR. We're doing a special broadcast for International Day of People with a Disability. We'll be back to regular programming, including Women on the Line, next week. Um, and, Jax, I just wanted to ask you about a report that you actually brought to my attention um, that was recently published by Women's Health Victoria. Could you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, so it's actually going to be launched. It's publicly available, and it's called um, Great Expectations, um, Experiences of Early Motherhood, um, and looking at the kind of things um, that women without disabilities particularly, it's not looking at um, disability yet, um, uh, experience in terms of, um, you know, being the birthing, birthing person and being the primary carer, um, and how often there can be really gendered expectations around what that looks like and the role of that woman to be able to, um, you know, do everything for that child and often be um, doing things solo and being relatively unsupported and spending, you know, days at home with the, with the young baby and how often um, that, that new space in your life, that new relationship um, can be a time of great joy but also a time of, like, high stress and sleep deprivation and upheaval. Um, and I think when you add disability into the mix, like we're, we're doing today, um, you know, that, that 
there's extra levels of complexity to it and there's extra kind of pressures um, that we come under. I find even now with my daughter when, like, when I'm out in public with her and, you know, my partner stepped away to do something or whatever and so me and her are just hanging out, I'm really aware that people are watching, you know, and maybe they're watching because they're a bit curious and they haven't seen someone with a disability, you know, interact with a little kid or parent a little kid. Um, but I am aware that, like, you know, like I, I'm watched or looked at to a higher degree than other parents are when they're in public with their kid. Um, and sometimes, like, that can be really stressful. And so I kind of feel like I've always got to be on top of my game. I've always got to be, you know, making sure she's all right and she's not going to cry and blah, blah, blah. Because there's this fear that, you know, if my child loses it, like, and some stranger steps in, are they going to read me as her as her parent? Um, what does that mean? So I think, yeah, there's a lot of, there's a lot of different questions that disability brings up when we think about parenting. Um, that, that, that organisations, you know, that people aren't even starting to think about or research or have areas of interest in it, that we're living it and, um, yeah, we need to start having more of these conversations. Welcome back to Tuesday Breakfast on 3CR Community Radio. You were just hearing part of 3CR's Disability Day broadcast with Nicole Smith, Jax Jackie Brown and Elvira Tarant. We're going to hear part two of that audio now. And those three are speaking about parenting with a disability. Have you found that your child or your children have um, adapted to you being in a wheelchair or having having a physical disability? I know, Elvira, I've seen um, your daughter kind of push a book further onto your lap so that you can reach it. Have you found that they're intuitive in what you can and can't Yeah, so I've found with my oldest, um, she's really aware. So she knows everything from, you know, where I can use my, I can only use my right hand, for instance, and she'll position my phone or whatever it is that she needs um, at a level that I can reach or even position the phone so I can reach the button. Um, If I'm putting moisturiser on her face, she'll kneel down or position herself so that I can reach her cheek to rub it in um, or even comfort her if she hit herself. Um, she knows that my right hand works or she knows if she wants to touch my left hand, she'll have to turn off my wheelchair first. Um, and my little son now, he's nearly one and he's a little bit more rough around the edges. Um, and he knows now that he has to come to me and if, he's, if I'm on the bed, he'll have to jump up and come to me that I can't just pick him up. So they're really intuitive, and I think they understand a great deal um, more than adults sometimes. <laughs> and they just naturally do it, and they adapt, and it's it's beautiful, really. It's, it's really touching. Mm-hmm. Yes. Um, yeah, I mean, I think with our daughter... She's only seven and a half months, so she's getting to the point now where she's real, like she's more engaging with toys and the world and stuff. So she's just started, um, you know, like trying to pull herself up on my chair and like play with my wheels and and get under my chair and like 
um, hide out <laughs> under there and hang out and like, yeah, like yeah. exploring it as though it's like this interesting thing that I think previously she hadn't. She just gone, oh yeah, whatever. <laughs> That's just a thing. Um, where now she's starting to actually engage with it. Um, but yeah, I'm kind of really interested to see, um, yeah, the kind of ways that she'll learn to interact with my chair and my body. Like I, as I said, I can't pick her up from the floor, and so I'm interested to see as she's able to stand up more and stuff, how we can work together for me to be able to get her up off the floor onto my lap, those kind of things. Um, but yeah, I think that, that she's just starting to kind of work it out, um, which, which is really beautiful and, and interesting too. Yeah. yeah. I know that um, both of you have kind of mentioned um, in passing that when you've been um, out in public, you've um, been sort of... People have looked at you and and stared and sort of been confused when when you're the mother or when you're the parent. Um, I just wondered how that sort of manifested itself when you were going through... Um, either the hospital or when you were going through the IVF process, whether you found that professionals were, that they showed some sort of subtle discrimination as well? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I mean, yeah, definitely. And I mean, I didn't carry out our daughter, my my partner did. Um, So, and I I am interested in trying to carry our next child. And so I'm interested to see how, you know, being potentially pregnant with a baby and, and all that will impact further but um yeah like for us we personally chose not to undergo any disability testing um that was our personal choice we didn't want to do that and um I remember when we told the IVF clinic you know that this was we were choosing not to to go down that path um the nurse leaned across the table and and put her hand on uh, my partner's hand and said you know this is your choice though um as though I wasn't even there in that moment and as though we hadn't had discussions in our relationship about whether or not we felt comfortable testing or not testing. Um, it was kind of as though as I, I was pushing my agenda onto my partner or something and, of course, she'd want to get rid of disability because disability is a terrible thing. Um, so we had, you know, situations like that. Um, we were really clear in our birth plan and in our stay at the hospital when our daughter was born that, you know, that, um, you know, I was her other parent and that, um, yeah, that, that that was who I was. But I, I feel like a lot of the time uh, in our relationship, people read me as Anne's friend or sister um, and they don't necessarily read me as her partner. And because I'm not uh, femme presenting at all, um, I think I get read as, you know, not, not being my daughter's um, parent either, like that I must just be some kind of friend who's rocked up and is playing with her. So that's always frustrating. Yeah, I can imagine. Elvira? Yeah, I've had very similar experiences to um, Jack. Um, in public, yeah, definitely. Um, and that feeling, that overwhelming feeling of, oh, please don't, like, you know, chuckle wobbly in front mm. of anybody because they're going to stare at you as if you're a bad mother or as if, you you know, you're not doing the right thing or what are you doing with this child, whose child is it? Um, and then in the hospital system, it's definitely, um, we face the same thing in regards to testing. We didn't want to test um, for Down syndrome and all that kind of stuff um, because we didn't want to abort and there's no reason to test, there's no reason we needed to know that. 
Um, and if we did have a child with any disability, we would have welcomed it with open arms. Um, and for us, I think it extended also to Shane. So a lot of the time, people just presume that because I had a disability that my husband had a disability or that he would have. So when I would talk about him and then he'd come because he was at work or whatnot um, during my stay or during appointments, um, when they'd meet him, it'd be like, oh, oh, so your husband, oh, oh, wow. Like you can just see it all over their face. Mm. Um, and it also, I also had a moment which I'll never forget. It was with my first child and um, I was a few days later and she was a premier baby, so she was in the nursery. And I had a team of doctors and nurses and all sorts of people, um, like patient consultants, that would just come in because I was quite curious. And at the time, I wasn't really aware that I could just tell them not to come in. <laughs> I, just, I just, I don't know, I, just, I, I kind of allowed it myself. Um, because I thought, okay, they can learn and they're curious and that's fine. But it started to get quite intrusive and it started to take away from my experience as a mother um, with breastfeeding, with just connecting with my child because I could only have her for a few hours because she had temperature control issues. Um, but she had to be in an incubator in the nursery. And then what I now see upon reflection is that I had a lot of judgment Um in the way I breastfed or in the way I did anything really and it really changed the way I managed the second pregnancy and um, everything from the birth to after to going home. Um, I was very much more in control and very aware that I had all these people judging me um, and really just not believing that I can be a good mum. Um, I had one midwife that was a part of the WING clinic, which is the women with individual support needs, um, and she was meant to be helping me during my stay at the hospital, and she blatantly told me that I need more than one carer because I need someone to care for me and care for my child yeah. when I get home, and that my mother should be taking time off to look after both of us. Mm. And for me, that was a massive slap in the face and that was a moment of, of real weakness, I guess, but she chose to really dig it in and, you know, push the point that, hey, don't forget that you have a disability and that this is going to be way harder. Um, so for me, that was a really challenging time and, and I look back at it now and laugh, but at the time it could have really broken me and I see how it, it really shaped the first few months of motherhood for me and really made me think, wow, I need to prove you wrong and I'm going to prove you wrong. I'm happy now that I can make mistakes and it's okay to make mistakes. You're listening to 3CR Radio. Oh, thank you, Sister Zai. Welcome back to Tuesday Breakfast on 3CR Community Radio, 8.55am on your dial. We are joined live on the phone now by the phenomenal, I don't want to go overboard, but um, she is, phenomenal Lizzie O'Shea, who is a lawyer, a writer, and a board member of both the Digital Rights Watch and the National Justice Project. Lizzie, thank you for joining us this morning. Thank you so much for having me on. So, look, 
it's a bit of a uh, bit of a depressing time to be an Australian at the moment. I think um, we can all agree. <laughs> um, and you've been really active in one particular area at the moment, which is looking at these um, anti-encryption laws that have just been rushed through Parliament. Um, so I was wondering if you could maybe start by giving our listeners a bit of an overview of what was known as the AA Bill, um, and what was proposed and what's now sort of been passed into law. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I think it's a really important issue to cover, so I'm really glad that you're spending time on it. Um, this bill was first exposed to the public in a public exposure draft in September. It's a really long bill. It contains a lot of things, um, including some very aggressive warrants and um, lots of other business like that. But probably the most controversial aspect of the powers is, um, or, the, or the bill is a set of powers contained in Schedule 1. What they're designed to do is to allow law enforcement and intelligence agencies to ask technology companies, although it could also be others, to build tools for them, uh, to give them information, uh, to give them capabilities to essentially circumvent and weaken encryption. And the reason that that's a big problem is that we often rely on encryption to go about our daily lives in the 21st century. So encryption really at its most basic is a way of protecting information as it travels through space. So it's a way of of ensuring that information is not readable by anyone except the sender and the recipient. Um, So that might be a message between two people, uh, but it might also be uh, communications in networks like, for example, the power grid or the banking system when you send credit card details over the internet or the banks talk to each other about transferring money um, or, or, or there's lots of other ways in which we use encryption to protect uh, digital uh, systems like the health system when we have health records that are stored um, over the internet and things like that. So you can see how essential it is to protecting lots of the basic civil infrastructure that we rely on to get about every day. And what the problem with this bill is, is that it creates um, the capacity to build weaknesses into that those forms of encryption. And that might be fine for one purpose, but once that weakness is in there, it can really be used by anyone. So the, there are lots of people who are involved in technology and civil rights and experts in cybersecurity are very worried that deliberately bringing weaknesses into encrypted systems um, might be fine for one purpose, but the problem is that becomes an extremely valuable tool that can be used by criminals and state-sponsored hackers uh, and it's very difficult to maintain, maintain control of the knowledge about those weaknesses. So we might be creating for ourselves much more risk than what we're trying to protect against by giving law enforcement powers. Mm. And so that's really interesting because, I mean, that seems like a really huge vulnerability to be opening Australia up to for the purpose of... Um, I guess, fighting crime, and the government's been quite clear that their um, their ostensible intention behind this bill is to fight, um, I guess, child abusers, terrorists, and serious criminals, basically. Um, so in your mind, is it worth it? Is that... I, I, I mean, I think probably most of your listeners would agree with me that it's not. One of my big worries is that um, what we saw last week was an extremely truncated process. So this bill only had sort of three months before, three or four months before the public really, before it was passed into law and in just an appalling uh, display by the dying, in the dying days of the last parliament uh, before the end of the year. Uh, and I think people would be right to be concerned at that process alone. But of course, the bigger anxiety that I probably share with lots of your listeners is that 
you know, when law enforcement intelligence agencies ask for powers, I don't think it's the job of elected officials to just acquiesce to that request. I think it's their job to ask questions as to why these powers are necessary. Law enforcement intelligence agencies have extensive powers at their disposal already. Um, they should be finding ways to use them uh, better if they're struggling to do their job. They shouldn't just be asking for more powers as a default response to problems that they face in the work they do. And I think what was on display last week really was the idea that... Um, you know, law enforcement will will make this request for greater powers and elected officials will acquiesce. And that's not good enough because we don't get the counterbalance of the public interest represented in that decision-making, lawmaking process. And it puts us all at risk. So what we see then is intelligence agencies prioritising their own interests above the general public that they're supposed to be working for. And that power imbalance needs to be corrected, I think, by arguing that this bipartisan consensus on national security should end, that we should actually have a greater public debate about what the work of our national intelligence agencies are doing mm -hmm. and whether it's legitimate and whether they need these powers uh, and how we can make sure that the public is protected in the digital age rather than just assuming that the national security is synonymous with greater powers for agencies. Mm. I really, that's a really interesting point that you've just raised because there were so many submissions made to um, the Senate Scrutiny Committee for this bill um, and just, you know, a wealth of brain power went into examining it and critically evaluating how it could be improved and all that sort of thing. But I sort of didn't mm. see very much um, time or space for the public to then be able to be involved in a debate around it after that and after those submissions mm. had all been released. In your mind... Um, what what would that look like? How how would how could we have done that better? Um, or I'm sorry, not we, I guess, but how could the government have done that better if they wanted the public to be more aware of what was coming um, and to have their say? Yeah, I think it's a really interesting question because I think in retrospect, uh, everyone's a bit annoyed maybe at, at, at uh, sections, of, sections of society like the tech industry. You know, I see mm. people talking about this on social media where they say, why didn't the tech industry pop up about this earlier? And Look, I'm a big critic of the tech industry for the various ways in which they violate our privacy and, our, and limit our freedom every day. But I have to say on this bill, they were very forward-thinking and mm -hmm. um, very uh, assertive in trying to protect the interests of their consumers. Um, and so we did see submissions to the relevant committee by companies like Apple and then, of course, um, civil, you know, kind of uh, industry age, uh, alliances and agencies that will do the work of these companies as well, making submissions and doing lobbying and stuff. So there was a very active and, and engaged set of uh, companies and people who were advocating against this bill and trying to find ways to um, improve it and trying to have discussions with uh, the government and the parliament about how they could, they could make it better. I would also point out that almost n no one was consulted, which is mm. really remarkable. Yeah. So, you know, one of the, um, before the committee on uh, the Friday before last, I gave testimony to the relevant part of the committee that was scrutinising this bill. And prior to me, there was a, a cyber security company uh, that's Australian-based that is one of the most significant companies in terms of providing cyber security in the country, and it wasn't consulted prior to the bill being introduced at all, which mm. is kind of an astonishing oversight. So that baseline um, requirement of, of consultation really was written over roughshod, ignored. Um, none of these recommendations were really taken on board in any meaningful way that was made yeah. by key SB 
expect, expectancy society. So it's a surprise. It's a kind of you, you wonder how it is possible to include the public more when the overarching purpose of that consultation period was not to really meaningfully consult at all. Mm. I would say though, Digital Rights Watch worked um, to try and involve the public, which is I'm on the board of, and we actually um, gathered together, you know, nearly fifteen thousand submissions from the public. They're in a standard form, but I think the number, sheer number, give you an insight into the fact that. The public is engaged yeah. in, on the issue. They want to have greater say. They want to have the chance to, um, you know, be heard and, and involved in the process. So there's a wealth of um, engagement, interest and engagement on this topic. And it's when it's deliberately designed to not um, be uh, made available to people to participate in, you can see how it gets rushed through. But I think there's lots and lots of ways in which we could do this better. And it's a real shame that we've gotten to this point where the, you know, the laws pass so quickly. But mm-hmm. I mean, I just would add before I, I let you speak again, just that um, you don't even need to listen to me as a um, person who's involved in this from a civil rights perspective in order to get a pretty damning condemnation of this bill. It is worth going back and looking at some of the submissions from these companies and organisations to see slightly a slightly different perspective, which I think is extremely compelling. Mm. The guy from this cybersecurity company that I was speaking about before, it's called Senator. Um, it was quite interesting to watch because the Liberals on the committee were just throwing talking points at him about things like child sex offences, about um, state-sponsored hacking, about all this stuff, and he was just batting them away with, without any difficulty at all. And you can see here this real disjuncture between what the, the agencies are asking government to do and what the reality is uh, for the public and for businesses who um, sell products based on cybersecurity. It's very, mm. very easy to come up with lots of compelling arguments against this law and does highlight just how much power these agencies have and you know that we've got a real fight on our hands to re to shift that power, that balance of power towards the public yeah um and all of that is really super compelling and, and terrifying um but i am interested in in a particular sort of impact that this law might have and that's um I'm sure many of our listeners use encrypted platforms in their personal life for like activist and advocacy campaigning work media that sort of thing mm-hmm. um I know most of us in this room do um so when I think about this law being passed now being able to get around encryption software and sort of in conjunction with other laws that were passed this year and I'm thinking specifically of the anti-espionage laws mm. which sort of um open up scope for activist um, and campaigning behaviour to be criminalised. Um, I'm just, I'm wondering what your thoughts are on that sort of, the intersection of those things and maybe how this, the new anti-encryption laws are going to be potentially applied to activists and what that might mean for us. I can absolutely see these powers being used on activists. One of the disappointing aspects of the last three months is that uh, Unions Australia didn't engage more fulsomely with this process, which I think was a mistake because I think, for example, union officials could also be targeted by these powers. Mm. It's any kind of serious offence which is um, defined in a pretty narrow way in the sense that it's, it's got to have a certain jail term attached to it. But it's not actually... The events aren't actually that serious in the everyday sense of the term. So there's a lot of scope for this to be used against activists, um, union activists, obviously journalists as well uh, and that's what we've seen also in the introduction of the metadata retention scheme. We were told this was only going to be used for serious offences and in fact we know that there's 
350,000 requests a year for metadata from all sorts mm. of agencies and people that, you, you know, weren't envisaged in the original legislation or we weren't told that was the purpose of the original legislation. So a huge amount of scope creep, um, you know, if these powers exist, these agencies tend to use them and there's no guarantee that it's going to be confined to the very serious offences that were discussed when the, the bill was being uh, put to the parliament. Mm-hmm. Um, so, I mean, uh, one of the... I, I'm being glib here, but if you want to know how best to avoid these, the scope of these powers, you might want to look at what apps politicians are using, for example, because they're mm-hmm. all very good at using encrypted apps to communicate with each other when there's a leadership bill. Um, and so I always think it's a good guide to work out which are the best apps to use. So there are obviously other applications that are completely based outside of Australia which will not be subjected to this law or can't meaningfully have this law imposed upon them I should say um, and so we can you know I think it's important to take your cybersecurity seriously to the extent that you can work out what your risk is and try and figure out ways to protect yourself um, you know and the fact of that I think also highlights that these laws aren't fit for purpose because if you are in any way a sophisticated criminal um, which is you know, the supposed intent of this bill, you'd have uh, a lot of knowledge and um, skills at your disposal to circumvent these laws, uh, which suggests that, you know, there's another purpose afoot here, which Mm. I think is greater surveillance rather than just targeting of of serious criminals. Yeah, and I think that that seems fairly clear. Thanks so much for joining us this morning, Lizzie. Um, And for people who want to keep up to date on this bill, I highly recommend following you on Twitter um, and, yeah, keeping an eye on your media. So thanks again. Thanks so much for having me on. From every corner of the land, womankind arise! Women on the Line, a current affairs program devoted to women's voices, covering a diversity of women's interests and hearing women's perspectives on current affairs. Militantly, never you fear! Erosion of human rights leads directly and inevitably to erosion of human security. We do not accept the denial of our rights because the right to have a say over our country is our life. Women on the Line. Tune in on Mondays at 8.30am and Wednesdays at 6am. Guatemala. I'm Black Betty and you can join me for Black Noise Radio each Thursday from 2 to 3pm. Join me each week as I serve you up a deadly fine offering of all things black as we explore black Australia and everything fabulous it has on the offer. We'll check out and see what's making black news locally and from right around Australia. And we'll explore all things Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander and the deadly solid culture and people with a look at community news, views, music, culture and the arts. Hope you can join me for Black Noise Radio featuring black news, views, current affairs, music, culture and the arts from an Aboriginal woman's perspective. That's me, Black Betty. I'll see you Thursdays at 2. You're listening to Tuesday Breakfast on 3CR with myself, Anya, Ayan, George and Lauren. Next up, I'm going to be talking to Patrick Warner. Patrick Warner is the principal lawyer in the civil team at the Victorian Aboriginal Legal Service. Prior to that, he has worked as a lawyer at Victoria Legal Aid, Justice Connect Homeless Law, Tenants Victoria and the West Heidelberg Community Legal Service. 
Along with other staff at Bells, Patrick is assisting the family of Tanya Day through the coronial inquest process, and he's going to be talking to us about that a little bit. Thank you so much for joining us today, Pat. No problem. Thanks for having me. Um, could you go through the facts of what um, led to Auntie Tanya Day's death and what this coronial inquest is about? Yeah, not, not a problem. Uh, look, first of all, uh, Tanya Day uh, was a 55-year-old Aboriginal woman. She was from the Yorta Yorta Nation in the Yachuka area. Uh, she was a mother, a grandmother, a sister, an auntie, and a very well-respected member of that local community. Mm. Uh, and she, just so people know, she was instrumental in setting up the local Aboriginal-owned childcare centre called Barimba, mm. and she was also an activist. So some of your listeners might recognise her face from Dondale protests and other mm. um, you know, activist work. Um, she'd been helping to raise funds for other families affected by Aboriginal deaths in custody at the time of her own passing. Mm. Um, in terms of what occurred... Um, on the 5th of December last year, Tanya was travelling by bus and train from her brother's house in Moama, in regional Victoria, into Melbourne. Uh, her youngest daughter, Kimberley, was going to meet her at Southern Cross Station. Kimberley was pregnant at the time and Tanya was looking to move back to Melbourne to find some work and help Kimberley out with the arrival of her child. Um, Tanya was a, a very fit and healthy woman, quite a slight woman, a frequent gym goer, um, but she had some past trauma in her life. She'd lost numerous family members and a young child at only several months of age. Mm. Uh, it was increasingly rare, but from time to time, Tanya would use alcohol to cope with her trauma. Mm-hmm. And on this day, the 5th of December last year, um, it seems she'd had some alcohol that day uh, at some point during her journey and was basically asleep on the V-Line train between Bendigo and Southern Cross in the afternoon um, when the V-Line conductor came upon her um, and for various reasons made a decision that she was behaving in an unruly, quote-unquote, way. Mm. Um, and he decided to call police to have her removed from the train. Um, and look, as came out in the coronial inquest directions hearing last week, there were three other witnesses on that train that directly observed Tanya and didn't think she was being unruly or made no comment about that at all. Mm. Um, so she's then taken by police from the train platform off to the Castlemaine police station. So she's removed from the train at Castlemaine train station and taken to that police station. Uh, She's lodged in a cell uh, for being drunk in public and effectively within one hour of being lodged, um, she suffers a very serious fall to her head, um, which is likely to have caused a traumatic brain injury. Mm -hmm. Um, She basically lies in the cell for another three hours and nine minutes before police enter to check on her welfare. An ambulance is then called at about 8 p.m., and she's taken to Bendigo Hospital. Uh, she's eventually flown by helicopter to St Vincent's Hospital after some brain scans, and she passes away tragically 17 days later on the 22nd of December. Mm. Um, so here we are, more than a, a year um, after that, after those events, and we've just had the directions hearing for the coronial inquest on Thursday last week. Mm-hmm. And really... Most of it is is set down what this inquest is going to be about. There are a few things that that are still up in the air, but we think that the key issues, uh, I I guess in a legal sense, are why was Tanya removed from the train in the first place? What prompted that decision of the V-Line conductor to stop the train and have her removed when the evidence is she was asleep? Mm. Um, So that's the first big question. The second big question is why was she placed in custody and was her management in custody appropriate? So, um, you know, I can say this because council assisting went through a you know, public hearing on Thursday and 
the evidence suggests that, that the appropriate checks weren't conducted by mm. police. Mm. Um, and there are very strict guidelines and rules in the Victoria Police Manual for managing people in custody, and they include, in certain circumstances, physical checks, in other circumstances, checks on CCTV. Um, and as council assisting in the direction hearing last week commented, mm. Mm. doesn't seem as though the correct procedure was followed here on the face of it. And there'll be more information and evidence about that as the coronial process goes on. Mm. And I suppose the most important thing in a way, um, the third issue I'd raise in terms of what this coronial is about is why does this offence of public drunkenness still exist? Mm. So um, the Royal Commission into Aboriginal Deaths in Custody uh, interim report in 1988 and then the final report in 1991 very clearly recommended that, that this offence be decriminalised. Mm-hmm. Um, all jurisdictions in Australia have done that except for Queensland and Victoria. Mm-hmm. Um, and a huge question floating above Tanya's death, tragic death, is why this mm-hmm. offence existed. And, and if the offence didn't exist, this very likely wouldn't have happened at all. So the coroner's already made an indication, Coroner Kate English on Thursday last week took the pretty unusual step of saying at a directions hearing, I'm actually going to make that recommendation, I'm telling you all now, that doesn't really ever happen. So Mm. um, that goes to show just how obvious uh, a causal factor that 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 offence not being decriminalised was here and and the yeah. um, you know the the job the government now has is to implement that recommendation from almost 30 years ago. Yeah, absolutely. There, I mean, it sounds like there are all sorts of tr- structural failures that contributed to Auntie Tanya Day's death. Um, but in particular, about that um, offence of public drunkenness, as you were talking about how the Royal Commission recommended that 30 years ago. Firstly, what was the rationale behind this recommendation? And secondly, in Victoria, why do you think it hasn't happened yet? Yeah, so firstly, uh, the rationale behind it was, well, the Royal Commission into Aboriginal Deaths in Custody examined um, many, many, many Aboriginal deaths in custody and looked for um, trends and, and patterns. And I suppose one of the key findings coming out of that report is that part of the reason there are so many Aboriginal deaths in custody is because there are so many Aboriginal people in custody. Mm. And another part, the flow-on finding from that was a large reason that um, well, a reason that so many Aboriginal people are in custody is because of this offence of public drunkenness. And there are, you know, all types of historical reasons why um, Aboriginal community members might, you know, resort to um, using alcohol to deal with past trauma mm-hmm. and all the rest of it. And in Tanya's case, um, it was, you know, definitely a coping mechanism for trauma that she'd um, experienced in the past, although, she, you know, it wasn't out of control. It was, it was an issue here and there. Mm-hmm. Um, but the offence... Um, is, is, is a very you know, important reason for um, over-representation and incarceration amongst Aboriginal community members. And so that was a, a key finding because um, the Ricky Dick Commissioner said that if we can get rid of this offence, there's a strong chance it will reduce Aboriginal deaths in custody by reducing the amount of Aboriginal people in custody. Mm. So having made that recommendation first in an interim report in 1988, because it was so obvious the Commissioner felt he needed to make an interim mm. finding on that before he finished the rest of it. But then it appeared in the final report of the Rickier Dick um, in Recommendation 79. Um, the, the next part of your question, why hasn't Victoria implemented it after all those years, is a very, very good question. Mm. So um, there's been you know, inquiry upon inquiry. Um, there's been multiple responses to uh, the Rickier Dick recommendations by the Victorian government over the previous two decades. Um, where they have to report on, on which uh, recommendations they've implemented and 
and why and why not. Um, and we're reviewing all of that material at the moment. But it's important to note there's also been a completely separate inquiry in 2001 by the Drugs and Crime Prevention Committee, so a Victorian parliamentary committee, um, several hundred-page report purely on the issue of public drunkenness, and the recommendation from that report in 2001 was that the offence should be scrapped and a very achievable method of doing that, and transitioning was laid out in that report. Mm. And again, that recommendation wasn't taken up, wasn't acted on by the Victorian government. So mm. I'm not a political expert. I'm not sure whether it's, you know, a, a symptom of political inertia at the time or whether um, there were other forces at play behind the scenes that wanted to keep that offence on the books. But tragically, what we're now seeing is is continued deaths in custody as a result of that offence. And I might point out mm. uh, even more tragically here that, that Tanya's own uncle, Harrison Day, um was one of the case studies in the original 1991 Royal Commission mm. into Aboriginal Deaths in Custody, and he had, in fact, died in a police cell in Echuca. Um So in the same country that the Tanya's from, he'd been um, arrested and put in the cells due to an outstanding $10 warrant for the offence of mm. drunk in public, and he'd suffered an epileptic fit in the police cells. He was a known epileptic, and police hadn't entered the cell for some hours, and by the time they did, he was... He was sadly um, almost passed away and couldn't be revived. So it's, it's in fact the second generation in this family mm-hmm. who have suffered a death in custody. Um, and, you know, if you take a step back and have a look at that, um, it really is compelling evidence that the offence needs to go and that those recommendations need to be implemented. Mm. And it's a, I guess it's a classic textbook example of intergenerational trauma playing, you know, going around in a vicious circle, really. It really is, yeah. yeah. I mean, and so, you know, Tanya, Auntie Tanya herself, someone who, who knew better than anybody um, the risks of incarceration for Aboriginal people. Mm. She was an activist. She was, you know, fighting to raise money for other families across Australia that had been impacted by an Aboriginal death in custody at the time of her passing. So yeah. it's it's even more tragic given you know, her knowledge of this area and, and her own, um, you know, mm. using her spare time as a busy grandmother and everything else to try and advocate for other families. And then, tragically, she passes away in, in this exact same context. So yeah. um, the family are absolutely devastated. Yeah. We're dealing with her four children and they're really struggling to come to terms with, with what's happened. And they want justice for her. They want change in the law. They don't want any other family, Aboriginal or otherwise, to have to go through what they're going through at the moment. Mm. Um, you know, Tanya never got to meet her newest grandchild, Kimberly's daughter, who's a happy, healthy bub, and I think that just tears them apart. So um, we're doing everything we can to support this family and to try and work with the new, well, the re-elected Andrews government to get some change on these laws. We heard um, Premier Daniel Andrews say at the, you know, the election, uh, after the election result, that Victoria is the most progressive government in Australia, mm. um, and we want him to give meaning to those words in this context, and to you know show some leadership and act quickly to implement these recruitment recommendations. There's plenty of talk at the moment about treaty and, and other positive things for the Victorian Aboriginal community, mm. um, but there is some real unfinished business here with this, um, these recommendations from Ricky Dick, and, and we're hoping to work with the government closely in a collaborative way to, to get these uh, recommendations implemented. Yeah, absolutely, and it sounds like you're doing a great job. And, yeah, there's so many grassroots um, activist movements that are happening around this issue as well. Um, And we here at Tuesday Breakfast are absolutely committed to, 
Yeah, promoting content about that as much as we can. Now, um, we could keep talking about this, but unfortunately we've run out of time. But thank you so much for joining us today, Pat. No problem. Thanks for having me. From every corner of the land, womankind arise! Women on the Line, a current affairs program devoted to women's voices, covering a diversity of women's interests and hearing women's perspectives on current affairs. Erosion of human rights leads directly and inevitably to erosion of human security. We do not accept the denial of our rights because the right to have a say over our country is our life. Women on the Line. Tune in on Mondays at 8.30am and Wednesdays at 6am on 3CR Community Radio, 8.55am. And streaming live at 3cr.org.au. Welcome back. We're wrapping things up here, Tuesday Brecky on 3CR Community Radio. You've just heard some awesome interviews today. That was a very moving interview that Anya just did with Patrick, I missed the surname. Pat Warner, yeah. Pat Warner yeah. from um, Victorian Aboriginal Legal Service, but Auntie Tanya Day. Mm-hmm. Um, About the coronal inquest, which mm. would be really interesting and awful, um, but we urge listeners to keep watching and protesting keep the and fighting. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, and we also had a great interview today with Queer Space about their upcoming Christmas extravaganza. Yeah. Awesome. It's <laughs> yep. beautiful. Yeah. And um, Lizzie O'Shea joined us to talk about the new anti encryption laws. So, mm. very great show. And up next is Accent of Woman. Um, so, this episode is about the 2015 Nigerian elections. So, I had the pleasure of interviewing Chiamsi Nawasu about the role social media played in that election and the way social media can be utilised in future elections. Mm. Sounds super interesting. And tomorrow you can tune in to Wednesday Breakfast. They'll be interviewing Peter Owen from the Australian Wilderness Society on oil exploration in the Great Australian Blight. And they will also have an interview with John Garrick, on Darwin Port's lease to a Chinese company and how Darwin might feature in China's Belt and Road Initiative. So that's ne- uh, 